You're listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on today's episode, I'm chatting with wearable journalist and co-founder of Hashtag Our Stories, a platform empowering mobile journalists to share stories of people positively changing their world. Growing up, journalism wasn't on this week's guest's radar. Completing a marketing degree, he realized he could use his newfound storytelling skills in a more impactful way and decided to apply for fellowships in the media industry. Landing in South Africa, he was quickly immersed and found himself falling in love with the work. Challenging prejudice as his driving force, he carved a name for himself and began reporting on what was happening around him. Years later, after having hitchhiked from Durban to Damascus, reporting from active war zones and working for CNN, he decided he wanted to do things his own way. Championing selfie or mobile journalism as a more powerful way to relay news, Hashtag Our Stories was born and continues to disrupt the way we consume information. To share his journey, here is what it's like to be Yusuf Omar. Welcome, Yusuf. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Before we get into all the details of your career, I know that you've done some really cool things um, thus far that I want to chat about, but I first want to know where your interest in storytelling came from and what those initial aspirations were, even as far back as when you were a child. That's a really, really great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked in that way before. Um, I grew up like many of us in a post 9-11 world, right? And with the name Yusuf Omar, growing up in the UK and then Australia, uh, and then studying in the US and then moving to South Africa, I think I was often put in a position where you you, you experience some form of, of um, prejudice, right? Like. Uh, having to uh, defend a religion that you might know very little about, um, assumptions around terrorism and those kinds of things. Um, and of course, I'm not alone in that respect. Like there's, there's uh, uh, you know, African-Americans are fighting against racism and this has happened for a long time. But I, I think I really recognized that prejudice was something that I wanted to address in my life. That like I, I was uncomfortable with the notion of, of people having predetermined assumptions about me or about anything else. Um, so for me, I think that that definitely ignited something in me um, that, that, that how could I do something about this? How could I address this? Um, and then moving to South Africa after finishing a marketing degree in, in, Aust- in Australia, um, I finished and, and the African continent was another example of, of a place that had suffered huge prejudice in terms of like what it represents um, as this big, bad, dark continent with, you know, uh, wars and famine and child soldiers. And I was like, surely it's, 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 it's not that or not all that. Um, it's, you know, the youngest continent, it's, it's got seven of the 10 fastest growing economies. So my storytelling journey started at that point in 2010, when I started that trip and hitchhiked from Durban to Damascus, South Africa to Syria. And that was mainly sparked by a curiosity to challenge people's assumptions and prejudice around the African continent. Um, and to see it with my own eyes and, and, and to realize for myself and to be able to share that actually it's not what you think. It's uh, safe and bountiful and um, 
and an amazing, amazing space. Um, so I hope that answers your question in a long roundabout kind of way. But I think at the core of, of, of why I got into storytelling is the challenge, uh, prejudice, uh, discrimination, um, and to celebrate diversity. Yeah, I love that, especially about kind of proving misconceptions about Africa wrong. I used to live in Africa in Namibia, so I know 100% where you're coming from with the, let's say, you know, Western world perception of the continent and it being this terrifying place. And actually, you know, it's just kind of like like anywhere else, but more sunny and, and things like that. Um, so and Namibia is a great, great space. I, I actually went to cover the seal cull there in, in okay. uh, once, but I mean, even the places that are big and bad and scary that do have fundamental challenges, like I, I get so upset by the lack of misunderstanding in the Western world about why those places are, 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 are dysfunctional, um, how recently they had colonial intervention, how recently uh, they, 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 they've been manipulated by European uh, countries. Um, yeah. and, and that is something as well that I, I'd love to challenge in my career. The idea of like, no, they're not uh, dysfunctional and corrupt just because they are. They're like that because of, of the way these countries have been exploited for the last few hundred years. Um, the massive empty mind that you've left in these uh, beautiful nations. I suppose just taking it back a few steps before we go into that 2010 hitchhiking journey, which I want to hear the behind the scenes of that. But um, so I know, so you just said that you did a marketing degree first, and then I was just having a little stalk of your LinkedIn. And so, you know, you were working a bit in local press in South Africa and stuff. So how did you kind of make that leap into figuring out what journalism was, I suppose, and how it would fit for you and how you were going to make that work in your life? The first day that I, I so I, I, I fell into journalism by accident. I wish I could tell you I was the kid that dreamt of being the correspondent. I, I went into a marketing, I went into a marketing degree. I, you know, finished it in the US on an exchange program in the heart of capitalism in New York City, Times Square. I looked up at these huge billboards of, of uh, it was like a jockey ad at the time. You know, one of these guys in a tighty yeah. whitey, like it was, <laughs> Actually, that day that I realized that I didn't want to do that. I just finished my degree and I was like, I'm fundamentally, I mean, there's great forms of marketing that you can do, but a lot of it is 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 pushing products of, of you know, uh, things people may not need um, and selling them an image of, you know, be this man, drive this car, drink this drink. Um, and then I thought, how can I use the same skill set of communication and storytelling uh, in a different way? So I applied for a bunch of stuff. I got a scholarship to study journalism in South Africa went over and South Africa was like the best place to dig your teeth into journalism because there's just so much happening, right? There's, there's every type of story that could happen does happen in South Africa uh, because of the amount of inequality, because of the historical injustices, because of the diversity of the amount of different races and, and uh, people's uh, different colored skin that, that, that call South Africa home. The, the youngness of the country, it's, it's, you know, 27 years into democracy. There's so many reasons why it was an interesting place to be a young journalist. Um, the first time I realized that this was for me, uh, I was doing a story in a township community outside of uh, Grahamstown, very poor community, and a grandmother had been raped. And I was working for Grocott's Mail, which is the oldest print newspaper at the time. We managed to write up a story about it and that got a lot of attention uh, with the local police uh, and they were able to eventually identify a suspect and make an arrest. Um, 
And I felt for the first time in my life a small uh, bit of impact, the ability to create awareness and amplify something that was important uh, to shout out about something, an injustice. Um, so that was the first, and, and, and it was a combination of that and, and pure exhilaration going into really risky situations and, 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 and also they were just to, get, to talk to people for a living. Um, so yeah, that, that led to, off the back of that, um, I'd gone off on that trip. And when I came back, um, I got offered, I, I had, uh, I joined the cadet school, of the, the newspaper cadet school. And funnily enough, I've never been a big reader as a, as a child. Like I, I, I'm not even very good at reading, to be honest. Um, so I was surprised that I'd get a place at a newspaper. Um, but the newspapers are a great foundation for journalism, for the basics of the who, where, what, when, why, how, the basics of fact checking and just being on a daily diary. Like, I think people underestimate what it's like to be doing, going out every single day. And if you don't have a story, trying to find a story. Um, the pressure of having to come to a newsroom every morning with three story ideas uh, every morning. You have to have three story ideas as you arrive. And I mean, that's something I've taken through right to my own company today. Um, and yeah, that's just where I started building my, my portfolio. And I think like often young reporters who are trying to get into this industry, they definitely need to prioritize that portfolio. Like cut out every single newspaper clipping, cut out every single byline that you have, stick it in a book. And when you get to that next job interview and you're moving from, you know, if you're moving from newspapers onto television, for example, I used to come with a big, thick, it looked like an encyclopedia, like a massive book. I used to slam it on the desk and be like, look how much experience I have. I've covered this and this. I was at the World Cup and I was at Nelson Mandela's funeral and this and this and this. Because um, you need to be able to visualize your, the, the, your experience. And I think journalism in particular is an easier way, is easy way to do that because your impact is, is often in the form of writing or in the form of podcasts or in the form of, of video. Well, my next question is kind of what provoked you then? You were on such a a, let's use air quotes good path in terms of forging out this career in newspaper journalism and it sounded like you were really making a name for yourself in South Africa um, as, as a reporter there so what provoked you then I guess to, to pack your bags and to go on this big adventure from South Africa to Syria yeah well actually it was off the back of the university study just before it was before the newspapers that I did that trip um, and the trip from the decision to from Durham to Damascus was actually to try and make a name in the industry. So I, I, I had carved out, um, I'd been offered some cadet school um, offers at News 24 and at independent newspapers group. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I, I knew I didn't just want to work in, 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 in local newspapers. I wanted to go out and tell stories about you know, on the on the front lines of of, of wars and on uh, and on, you know, uh, I wanted to cover humanitarian crisis. I wanted to be in all of these kinds of spaces, and I knew that the newspapers and local media did not have those opportunities. Everyone that I spoke to, and I, I emailed all of them, and they all, oh, we don't have budget. We're actually withdrawing our correspondence from various regions. It's just easier to have the wire services or you're too young, you don't have enough experience. Um, so the decision to go from Durban to Damascus, hitchhiking like 12,000 kilometers South Africa to Syria was, was basically me giving them a middle finger and saying, okay, I want to be foreign correspondent. You're not going to give me this opportunity because of whatever reasons. 
but what stops me being it anyway? Like, what's, what, what is a foreign correspondent but a reporter who's in a foreign location? And I don't need you to do that. I can do that myself. Um, so that's why it started. There's a low-cost way to travel across the continent to understand Africa for itself and, and disprove the, or, or, or challenge the existing stereotypes and to, to live the dream, to actually become the correspondent and, and got incredibly unlucky or lucky uh, at the end of that trip, uh, landed in Egypt during what would become the first Arab Spring, um, right? Uh, Hosni Mubarak's downfall. And I was in the right place at the wrong time, uh, which is very fortuitous as a, as a journalist. Um, and again, just a huge opportunity to build up a showreel now covering a big international story. Um, so yeah, coming back from there, I ended up in the newspapers. Okay. I think that's such a genius idea. And I admire that, you know, ambition and initiative so much that you just kind of went, okay, you're not going to let me do what I want. So I'm going to go and create this opportunity for myself. I think that's so cool. It's so inspirational. Um, so much Lucy, but I, I, I also, um, I'd have you know that like that's uh, perhaps the least desired trait when I actually became employed in, in, in mm -hmm. newspapers and television stations. Because once you've tasted that and, and, and proved yourself right, you don't stop doing that. And that makes you very, very difficult to manage. Um, one of my former bosses actually now works with us. Um, and, and she describes how like you're solid reporter and, and a lot of fun but impossible to manage because if somebody told you no you do it anyway um you can't cover that story you just go and do it anyway um so yeah i, I think it's it, it's it's a it's a double-sided sword that independence and, and stubbornness to, to say hey i'm going to be a disruptor and I'm gonna disrupt the status quo of how this career should go uh also means that in the newsroom you're really difficult to manage and, and people need a really long leash <laughs> That's so funny to hear. But yeah, I think, you know, as a journalist, it's probably more of a pro than a con to have that just kind of curious nature that leads you to all, all these different places, no matter what. And so you kind of took this, um, I watched your TED talk and you coined it, you know, like selfie journalism um, and mobile journalism, of course, you, you took to it kind of so well and you didn't stop on that first trip, you went to Congo and then Syria as well after on kind of similar expeditions. So can you tell me what it was like reporting in those war zones, I suppose, without say the backup of CNN or, you know, big teams going with you to make sure that you were safe the whole time to kind of do all your contacts for you. What was that experience like just on, you know, a human level? Were you scared or anything like that? Or, or how was it? Yeah, I've never been more scared in my life. Um, I think, you know, you, you, at least in my side, you romanticize over this like idea of, of, of foreign correspondents heading to the front line and covering disasters and war zones. And, and to be honest, a lot of it is incredibly exciting. And, 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 but on the other side, it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I would, I wouldn't want to be even one centimeter closer to the, the conflicts that I witnessed. Not, and, 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 and I wouldn't do it again either. Um, like that was a time and, and I wouldn't go back to that time. I, I think that there's smarter ways to tell that story, at least for me in the position I'm in now, curating people on the ground. Of course, it's value to having boots on the ground, but like the risks are, are, are huge. Um, I wasn't completely on my own. I was 
piggybacking of NGOs, uh, international organizations like Gift of the Givers, that were working closely with the South African government to deploy humanitarian relief. So in 2012, um, an ammunition depot exploded in uh, Brazzaville, Congo. And you know, you get this press release come out, you hear that the NGA was going. The first battle as a young reporter that really wants to be in these locations is to fight for that story in Newsroom. Uh, convince your news editors that it's worth covering, right? Because it's some other African country and, and, and who cares? Um, convince your, your editors that you're the one that should go above other reporters that have been waiting a long time for these kinds of opportunities. Um, and then doing justice to that story. Um, so 2012, when I went to Congo, I was still working for the newspapers. I was at the Star newspaper at the time. And, we arrived uh, in Brazzaville, and it's just an area that's been decimated. The big ammunition depot is uh, caught fire in the middle of a civil population. And when it exploded, like for two kilometers in every direction radius, has just been flattened um, by these explosives. And there are tanks and grenades and mortar, and it's just like a junkyard of waste. Uh, ammunitions, um, many of them still still live. Um, so you're kind of delicately maneuvering around this landscape a bit like like a like a minefield basically um, with a team of dogs that are trying to sniff out for uh, bodies and going to the hospitals where you know there's like men my father's age that are screaming like children uh, having all kinds of procedures done with, with little or no uh, anesthetics uh, or, or, or pain relief. Um, so that was a, 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 an interesting experience. Um, and, and also the, 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 the sharp contrast going from those hospitals and that uh, location where the trauma had taken place and then staying at a five-star hotel with this international NGO and like jumping between these two worlds um, was, 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 was an interesting experience. But for all of that, I was a print reporter, and my only mandate to my employer was actually just to do written copy. But I would scrap a, just the night before I left for Congo. My uh, fiance, who's now my wife, Samea, gifted me a GoPro uh, video camera, and I don't know how she knew that I really, really wanted it. Maybe I was talking about it in my sleep. Um, but it was what I always wanted. And it's that little action cam that people traditionally at that stage were using for skiing and like uh, adrenaline sna snaps. I had this thing strapped to my head for the whole trip, big bright flashing red light back then, big metal in a plastic case, but like properly strapped to my forehead. And I captured that whole trip through my forehead. And on top of that, apart from writing in those videos, people pointed, you can see me writing little scribbly notes on notepads. Um, I'm also taking photos on a camera. And I was at that stage already pushing to become a multimedia storyteller, even though it wasn't required. And, and you know, there wasn't necessarily even bandwidth for it at the organization I was working at the time. I was, I was shooting lots of photos and sending them back so that my print copy would have original photos. I was shooting tons of video through point of view and selfie style to help establish where I was and even how I was feeling, which is something that 
traditional correspondence couldn't really do, uh, at least at the time. And I was staying up all night and editing all of that, the videos on like iMovie or some really elementary software and the photos I was trying to edit as well. And I was sending all that back on, on relatively poor Wi-Fi. Um, but without even realizing it, I, I, I had built those skill sets on the Dome Master script where I already started shooting videos of myself and photos. I was now actually those skills on an international uh, story in a, in a foreign land. Um, and I think that was the start of me becoming this, 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 this mojo, this mobile journalist and, and being this one man or one woman band storyteller where, you know, what would tradition take like three or four people's roles I was able to do to some extent on my own. And how did you kind of feel that, say, the traditional world of journalism received this nuanced form of, of becoming this multimedia journalism who did journalist, sorry, who didn't need, you know, excess people. You could kind of do it on your own just from your your GoPro, as you said, or, or your phone. When you went back to the office, was it received in a positive way or were people a bit skeptical about it? Badly. I, I think some people were really supportive. Um, and, you know, on, the, on, on a senior level in the newsroom, uh, it made a lot of sense, right? That like newsrooms are going through a difficult time, there's cost cutting, and then, you know, it, it was really valuable to be resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a mid, so like that was on a senior, like editor in chief level, people were really supportive. And, and, and even on a junior level, people were supportive. My, my, my peers wanted to learn these skills, and, and I was already starting to do trainings, and, you know, uh, I've always been interested in, in being able to share this kind of knowledge. But on a mid-management level, it was probably some of the worst professional experiences of my life. Like, mm. I remember, honestly, like, days when I was working at the Star newspaper, and I was feeling, literally, I, I, I felt bullied by especially the photography department um, that were really under a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, there was this new buck that was trying to do it all. Um, and I was, I, I just remember a day where I was in the photo kind of department and I was trying to use their computers to edit some footage because um, I didn't have a, a computer at that time that could handle that footage. And just like really mean remarks and, uh, you know, snarly comments. And I remember crying. I remember going to a corridor and, and with a photographer that I did uh, have a relationship with and uh, and crying, and I was like, "What am I doing? I'm like, you know, I'm a grown man in a, in a working environment." Um, so no, I, I definitely, it, it wasn't easy at all. Like there was a lot of people. There was a lot of 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 fear. There was a lot of fear that like that the world was changing, um, and in that fear, the easiest thing to do was to say that that the, that the output that I was trying to do was shit that Mm -hmm. it was low quality, it was amateur, it was too shaky, um, you know, it's not even worth your time. Um, So yeah, for sure, it it wasn't always easy. And I I don't think it should be. I I think people think about disrupting and it's always painted in this glamorous light. By virtue of disrupting, you are making, you're, 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 you're challenging the establishment, you're challenging, the status quo you are changing things that have remained the same for a long time and that disruption is not comfortable disruption hurts um and it can hurt you and it can hurt those around you so i, I don't think it's, it's when you make significant changes in, in an industry or in a workplace 
I don't think it's supposed to be easy. Yeah. And I suppose that's what makes it all the the worth it when you do get to a place where you are now with your company, hashtag our stories. So I'd love to know how that came about and even where the idea came from to, I suppose, go off on your own. Maybe it was always inevitable for you, considering how, you know, you described yourself before in, in terms of always wanting to just follow your own instinct and do your own thing. But um, yeah, take me back to those days when you decided to go out on your own. Yeah, I could have never seen this coming, to be honest. My, my dream was always to, to work for an international uh, broadcaster, like a CNN or a BBC or an Al Jazeera. Um, from, you know, the South African newspapers, I went off and worked for television stations. From television stations, I went to the Hindustan Times in India and, and became a mobile editor and trained up 750 people. And from there, I landed what I thought was my dream job at CNN in London as a senior social media reporter, working specifically on Snapchat and emerging platforms, and kind of being able to live what I always wanted to do, being able to cover some of the big international stories. I, I covered the Ariana Grande attack in, in Manchester, for example. Um, but be careful what you wish for, because you know you just might get it. Mm -hmm. And after not even six months uh, at CNN, I, I, I was never more certain in my life that, that I wasn't enjoying it. The first time in my life, I wasn't enjoying the journalism that I was doing. Um, I was a small part of a very big organization. I had a very defined role with a very short leash, um, a desk job for the most part, working on, 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 on uh, the Snapchat platform. Um, and I was just used to having so much space to, to innovate and to, to, to try new things. If I wanted to try TikTok, I'd just try it. And, if I wanted to, and, and at a time where Donald Trump was, you know, coming down really hard on, on CNN um, with that whole kind of barrage of this is fake news. Um, I think a lot of traditional organizations really have to come in a bit and, and, and be very, very careful. Uh, so I wasn't enjoying that at all. Um, at the same time, my co-founder and I, and especially she was Samaya, was receiving a lot of invites all over the world to uh, come and train and speak and share some of the mobile journalism work that we'd been, uh, you know, building out over the last few years. And, and I remember there was a day when I was at home and I saw a list on the wall of like 17 countries, which became like 40 countries uh, that she was on her way to, starting with Sri Lanka, to, to, to go off. And, um, and so there was that. There was this, 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 this space of, of, of being in a job that I didn't particularly enjoy. On top of that, I was alarmed by the lack of, there's two fundamental reasons why Hashtag Outstories is born. One, I was alarmed by the lack of diversity in the media landscape. In an office with over 200 people in London that were part of the international office, I, I was the only one that I know of that identified as Muslim. Um, and I just couldn't get my head around that. It's such a big international world that we're covering. And we don't have that diversity in this newsroom to be able to cover it fairly. Um, and that was the same for most organizations. I think that was the reason why nobody thought Trump was going to win the election, because they didn't have enough people from those parts of America in the newsroom. And we thought Brexit was going to happen in the UK because, you know, the, the newsrooms are focused around this liberal bubble that is London and they missed the broader narrative. So diversity across the board, I was just like, we keep missing the biggest stories. Like, how do we keep missing these? And 
we keep missing them because you stop listening to people. You're, you're, you're talking to experts and pundits and politicians and your newsrooms are full of well-educated, uh, mainly white men, and you're just out of touch with what's really going on. And we thought, okay, if we could train a generation of storytellers and do the hard work of actually going around and training them, we would get access to new voices and we'd, we'd know what's really going on. We'd have, a, we'd have ears on the ground. There's enough people speaking to the president and the president's spokesperson. There's not enough people speaking to the people in the Rust Belt. There's not enough people speaking to the farmers. There's not enough people speaking to people that are ignored and marginalized. And, and fundamentally, we'd have a better, more accurate picture. I honestly believe that more angles or more people telling us a story and more perspectives is more true. Uh, I trust a hundred citizens cameras honed in on one fire than I trust one professional report. So that was one. The first reason we started it is because of a lack of diversity. The other reason is this like obsession with negativity where you know we don't cover a disaster unless X amount of people have died. And uh, if it bleeds, it leads as the old journalism maxim. Yeah. Bloody front pages sell newspapers. And I just didn't believe that was true for our generation. We've, we've had fear-mongering and negativity piped into our cell phones from the day we were born. We've seen beheadings and terror attacks and all kinds of nasty stuff. And we don't want to watch it, but we definitely don't want to share it. It doesn't represent anything about ourselves if we're, we're communicating to our friends. Uh, we want answers. We, we're faced with the climate crisis. We, we know it's a problem. We want to know how to solve it. Um, so that was the second reason. That, okay, could we create a network focused on solution-based storytelling? Could we focus the network focus on constructive journalism? And that's way harder than like traditional journalism. It's easy to say what's wrong. It's not so easy to say how we're going to make it better. Um, so Lucy, it's it, 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 those two things. It was the need to celebrate diversity and it was the need to amplify disruptors uh, that were making the world a better place. Yeah, I love that. I think those are such strong core aims, you know, to, to set up your company with and wanting to provide solutions to these problems you you so, so rightly identified within the space. And I feel I'm curious to know your opinion on this coming from, you know, I, I studied journalism in the UK in a very traditional setting. And, you know, the topic of citizen journalism would come up in a negative light from say lecturers in terms of there's no fact checking normal people wouldn't know how to do our jobs the fact that everyone with a phone is now a journalist is the worst thing that could happen because you know it's an it can be a biased situation where all, all these arguments which i'm sure you know as well so what is your take on that you know being someone that is such a a champion of the fact that everyone with a phone can tell their own story through their own eyes and you can bring that together to add the diversity to to the world yeah, 2017, I got invited to speak at, at News Exchange, a big international journalism conference. And I was speaking off the back of Nigel Farage, as a kind of counter speech. And got up, gave my talk about, you know, why I believe uh, mobile journalism amplifies marginalized communities and we get access to better stories and why I think it's the future of, of, of journalism. And Nick Robinson, who was the political editor at the BBC at the time, uh, was on the panel immediately following my talk. And I'm sitting on this stage and he says, after like I've just shared my entire life's work and, 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 and how I think journalism is going to go in the future. And he says, selfie journalism isn't journalism. Selfie journalism isn't news. I would rather die than do what you do. But it sure isn't journalism. Journalism is about finding things out. And that view that, you know, mobile journalism and people with mobile phones is the greatest threat to democracy 
uh, and delegitimizes the hard work of, of, of journalists that have been profession trained could not be further from the truth. Like the biggest stories of our time since 9-11 have been brought to us, not by professional journalists, but by citizens on the, on the ground. From the Syrian civil war at Bana al-Abed, uh, you know, the kid that's documenting from East Aleppo, right through to you name a story, and 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 and, and it's been mobile footage that helps help that help us have a better understanding of what's really going on. Does this entire revolution of of of, of democratization of voice diminish or get rid of the role of of a journalist and editor? No, it does the opposite. We need more experienced journalists and editors to help separate real from false. We need more editors to help shape and understand these narratives. We need more editors to help say, in this great amount of noise, which is social media, how do we find those valuable voices? Uh, and how do we amplify those and bring those to the top of your social media timeline? How do we get important stories to compete with the Kardashians and a funny cat video? Journalists haven't become less relevant, they've become more relevant. Their role has fundamentally changed. That's what's happened. You're never going to be the first on the ground. And people are going to find out what happened on Twitter way before you can give them the who, the where, and the what. We need to focus on the why and the how. We need to provide insight and analysis and commentary. We need to look at the constructive side and look at how we can make things better. We've got to work a lot harder. We've got deep fakes now that are easily able to manipulate a, a video that looks identical to Tom Cruise and, and can make him do all kinds of funny things. We need journalists that have got the, the, the tech skills to be able to work out if that is and isn't real. Uh, mobile journalism, selfie journalism, people with mobile phones have enhanced and, and made the role of professional journalists more important than ever before. And that's the reason why I have such a big team. We, we've hired almost 50 full-time staff now at, at, at Hashtag Our Stories. That doesn't sound like a newsroom that, 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 that is uh, entirely relying on random footage coming in. I think the other misunderstanding with what we do, there's a lot of news organizations that will simply find viral videos and verify them and put them online. There's no value to that. If the New York Times and the BBC publish the same video of Chewbacca mum doing something funny, why would I go to either? What, what's the incentive to go to either of those to watch it? They're offering me the same thing. And the other thing is a lot of traditional media organizations only really use user-generated content for two things. The funny stuff, like Chewbacca Mum, or the really scary stuff, like terror attacks. And if you imagine a big iceberg of, of user-generated content, that's the very tip. There is so much more underneath. We don't work with existing videos that, and, that have gone viral. We get in touch with individuals. We provide them with skills and a toolkit and a storyboard and help them script the story. We provide them with instructions on how to turn their uh, citizen storytelling into professional quality journalism. Um, so it's very, very different. It's, 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 it's a, a relationship between a journalist and reporter and, and, and citizens. And we spend hours and hours meticulously fact-checking every single thing that we publish. Um, so I don't think it's a threat to democracy. If anything, in the age of fake, uh, in the age of deep fakes and the ability to manipulate video with computers so that they actually look real, I think our only hope is mobile journalism. I think we need a hundred cameras honed in on, on somebody when they're speaking, because that's how we're going to verify that they really said that. Because you're going to be like, hey, Yusuf's an accurate source, Lucy's an accurate source, they were both there and documenting with their phones, so were 98 other people, 
Therefore, we can quite accurately ascertain that this really did happen, as opposed to one camera from one professional media organization that can be highly manipulated. Yeah, it's almost like a more accurate version of holding power to account if you have a load of footage of it instead of just one. I, I agree with you completely. I just think it's a really interesting debate and I knew you'd have an interesting opinion on it. And it's really cool to hear as well that when you do reach out to people or people come to you with stories, you then guide them through the process instead of, as you said, just pulling clips from you know their phone or them talking to their Insta stories, something like that, and chugging it up on your website, which I think so many of these new platforms popping up do because maybe the people in charge don't have that journalism background that you've had so that's cool to hear that's how you guys operate um and obviously thus far as you've demonstrated through the course of this conversation you've already done so much with your career you've disrupted you know you've made change you've made impact and now you're running your own business as well so what does the future hold for you what's next it is so exciting. Honestly, we're in like a rocket ship growth right now. Like three years ago, it was just two of us. Today, we're 50 full-time people. We're grabbing at talent as quickly as we can find them. So anybody who's listening to this, who, who, you don't need any journalism experience. You just have to be smart and critical. And we'd love to work with you, uh, no matter what background you're from. We're hiring lots and lots of full-time roles. What does the future look like? We've got a nine-year roadmap for where we want to be in nine years from now. We know what we look like in 2030. And I think we're, the decisions we're making today are preparing for that. Um, so for now, in, in, in 2021, the goal is to launch several more daily shows. Uh, so we currently have Our Stories, which celebrates diversity and disruptors. We currently have Our Health, which is looking at people that are staying mentally strong through health challenges. Um, and that's doing really well. We've been uh, running our health for a month and we have 80,000 subscribers already. Um, we are launching a new show on Monday, a third daily show uh, called Our Money. And that looks at uh, teen entrepreneurs that are changing the world uh, through their small businesses. Um, and by the end of this year, we, we can have multiple daily shows and be producing kind of the amount of content on, on, on par with it now this or BuzzFeed or Vice. So, with a different way of doing things. Over the next nine years, our, our big play or our big uh, transition is that we realized that mobile phones are the primary way that people communicate today, but that will shift to wearable cameras on the face. Uh, every single day of my life, I wear camera sunglasses. I wear a pair of sunglasses, a Snapchat spectacles with a camera in it, and I catch the world through my eyes. The big transition is that we're going to start layering the internet or the internet is going to be layered onto the world at the moment the phone is a nasty uh it's not a very nice way to, to interact with the world right you're looking down at a screen or you're looking through it when you are taking a photo or video it's really exciting where the future of technology is going the future of technology everyone listening to this in, in nine years time is going to have a, a pair of wearable uh computers on their face and it's going to be see through like a pair of glasses and on your world, you're going to look up at the sky and see what the weather is like. And you're going to look at the store and you're going to, be able to see what specials are going on. And you're going to get to a wedding and you're going to forget somebody's name and you're going to, it's going to pop up in front of you. And I don't think it's intrusive at all. I think it's less intrusive than the world that we currently have, where we're having to be consumed by our phones. I think it's going to be very minimalist, in fact. I think you're just going to get information when you need it most. And our access to the internet is going to be a lot cleaner when it's layered onto our world. Um, we are preparing for that. 
we are, are, are and, and to be ready for that world and to be presenting journalism in that world, you need to be really conscious of, of the power of the camera. Um, and you need to also be really conscious of the stepping stones to get there. So like uh, virtual reality and these VR headsets is, is one of those uh, stepping stones to get to that future. 3D video is another stepping stone, augmented reality. Throughout this entire interview, I've had a virtual cat resting on my head is another part of that, that future. And we're investing a lot in, in, in augmented reality. For example, we did a show called First Person uh, a few months ago, it was a Snap original. And that really encompassed a lot of our future planning into one show. We had the show shot with wearable cameras. So we're already playing with the technology on people's faces. Um, we had games through the camera. So like you'd be watching an episode, for example, of a woman that was training rats how to sniff out landmines. Um, and then you could watch the episode, swipe up into your camera, and then the rat was on your dining room table. And you could navigate it around to sniff out landmines. Um, and that is the big shift that we're making, which is this move from like social media engagement and comments and all that kind of stuff to like experiences and actually living in the story. Um, so in short, it, it, what we look like today is, is certainly not where we're heading tomorrow. If, if today we're, uh, you know, shaky selfie videos from communities around the world telling intimate and personal stories. Um, tomorrow we're immersing you in, in those stories. I love that. I think that sounds so exciting. And um, you're definitely going to be busy over the next few years, that's for sure. But I'm so excited to see what you guys come out with because you're already doing such cool stuff. And um, all of that, that about, you know, technology and the glasses and everything. I think it's mad, but in the best way possible. Um, so <laughs> I'm excited to see how that unfolds. And then I just have one more question for you and I'm going to let you get on with your day. If I put your 10 year old self sitting in front of you now, having been through everything you've been through in your career and also, you know, just your life experiences in general, um, what's the biggest piece of advice you would give that 10 year old self moving forward in life? Wow, that's a deep, deep question. <laughs> uh, in a journalistic space, I would say that factual accuracy is the most important thing. It's more important than anything else like if you journalists are not professionals we don't need a doctor's degree to do what we do you don't even need to go to university to be a journalist strictly speaking the only thing that we have is the trust of our uh peers and the trust of of, of the audience and if you lose that trust which is a very sacred thing because people are relying on you to give them the most accurate information it's incredibly difficult to get it back um and there's been times in my career where i haven't got it right i made mistakes and lots of newsrooms and, and reporters have but i think if i could go back um i would say that I, I, I would tell my 10 year younger self like aside from all of the technology aside from all of the uh storytelling techniques focus one million percent as your number one priority on on making sure that your stories are as accurate as they can be because uh, that's the ultimate value that you're adding. Um, and no, and, and that's especially important in the world that we're in right now, where we're working with citizen storytellers, is that, 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 that that's your value. Your value is that what I'm telling you is the truth. Um, and I think that should be the, the biggest thing that young storytellers should focus on. 
Yeah, I love that. I think that's so underrated as well and so kind of glossed over by so many people because they get lost in maybe the glamorized sections of stuff or obsessed with, you know, how they're going to make things look to other people when actually it just boils down to the real hard facts, which is kind of why journalism started in the first place, to relay facts to everyone else. So I think that's really interesting and, and valuable piece of advice as you use that word yourself. And I just want to say again, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. It's been so interesting. I feel like I've learned so much, so I know everyone else will as well. So thank you so much, Yusuf. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate, share and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And don't forget to follow at what it's like pod on Instagram and Facebook. To find out more about Yusuf and hashtag our stories, visit the links provided in the show notes. I'll be back next week with more inspiring stories. But for now, this has been what it's like with Luce.